tonight hey jonah i'm doing all right i just got back from a belated family you know holiday get together so nice how's your holiday season going um i think this was kind of a tough holiday season um i felt I think I had a lot of holiday blues, uh, yeah. and it's hard. And, and and as as you know, as a as a parent of a little one, especially, I think it's hard because you're trying to balance, you know, how you feel and what's going on with you emotionally and spiritually and all that, with the feeling of wanting to give your kids like the best ho- possible holiday they can have. You know, the most. Right the most magical, most fun time. Um, so I think it's hard to balance those two things against each other. Sure. How old is your, is your daughter? She is going to be two in two months. So 22 months. Nice. Nice. Congratulations. It's a, it's a whirlwind. Are you enjoying, are you enjoying it for the most, for the most part? I think that, And it's something that like my mom used to say to me growing up and even into like my early twenties, she would be like, you'll understand when you're a parent and it, boy, is it true. You know, you, you, you really have like no concept of this thing. And then you become a parent and you just like understand it all. So I think the love that I have for my daughter is just like, unlike anything I've ever experienced before. And that's, a really scary and powerful and amazing and wonderful and sometimes overwhelming and bad ways thing. Um, and I imagine, I imagine all those feelings will only get bigger and more intense as your, as your kids get older and older. Maybe the novelty of the whole thing, like you're saying, you have no idea what you're getting into no matter what mm-hmm. you read, no matter what anybody says to you, you have no idea what it is until you're holding your child and you're the only one. Exactly. Know? And and yeah. I was I was uh, at home with my daughter until she was about to and teaching at mm-hmm. night. So having that feeling like, okay, it's just us. Mm-hmm. It's on me. I'm going to have to do it right. <laughs> you know, um, it's a powerful. You trust yourself in ways you haven't before. You have to. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, it, but, but sometimes you make mistakes, and and sometimes you're overwhelmed, and it can be uh, quite a roller coaster. Something that I've been really struggling with, like I was just saying a minute ago, this past month, and just you know the past almost two years now is, and you know with like with everything with COVID too. I mean, we're in a little bit of a different situation now than the last time we talked, but it's really hard to balance the overwhelming part of you that's a parent 
with that part of you that doesn't disappear after you become a parent. Like my identity is now dominated by the fact I'm a dad, but it's not like the part of me that that existed that was my identity before I had a kid just, you know, up and vanished. So it's 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 a it's a challenge to kind of balance those two things. And I think um in the coming year if uh if I can do if I can do something for myself, I think it's gonna be to, you know, try to try to get back a little bit to being more than just a dad. Sure, yeah. Balancing identity. And there's part of you that is, you know, the child who grew up mm-hmm. around around Boston and Cambridge. And then there's a part of you who's uh, a writer. Are you freelancing still? I'm freelancing still. Uh, I'm also working not quite full time, many more hours now with the newspaper. Um, so I'm doing those two things. And that's adding up to as close as full time as I can be with a you know, 22 month old at home. Right. Well, good, good for you. Yeah. So working at a newspaper in the San Diego area. Yeah. In the, in the county. Yeah. Nice. I know on your, on your Twitter profile, you have the Patrick Ewing, you, mm-hmm. you interviewed Patrick Ewing a while back. Yeah. Right with, at with, the beginning of COVID. Yeah. And that must be a career highlight. That must be something that is amazing to have done. It, it, it was, I can't remember if we talked about this before. It Mm-mm. it was, it was amazing. It, it is a career highlight, but it was really strange because I think I interviewed him in May of 2020. So pretty early on in COVID, I was having all of COVID anxiety at the time. I wasn't sleeping at all. Um, I was just, everything was just a complete ball of worry. And I remember I talked to him for about a 20 minutes, maybe 20 minutes, a half hour. I was on no sleep. It was a really just strange time. And then a couple of days later, he, he got COVID and went to, and ended up in the hospital. Um, and I don't think it was serious. I think it was more just precautionary. But I remember thinking, am I the last person who ever interviewed, is, is going to have ever interviewed Patrick Ewing? <laughs> mm-hmm. So it was just, a, yeah. it was a, a weird time. So I would definitely say like, yeah, like career highlight, but also like very strange time in my life and everyone's life. Sure. Beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the idea that I, I'd been hoping to um, base some, some episodes around in which I did a couple uh, earlier with, I don't know if you saw the questions were thinking about fathers and about we're talking about becoming fathers and just mm-hmm. where our fathers came from and how they got to us sort of mm-hmm. the the sort of path i want to say how how masculinity and we're talking about identity um shape the kinds of fathers that came out of our father's generation i'm mm-hmm. getting when when was your father born he was born in the tail end of the 1940s. Okay. And your parents, how long were your parents married? So they got married in the early 80s, and they got divorced in the early 90s. Oh, 10, 10 years, 12 years, something like that. Uh-huh. And how old were you when they got divorced? Uh, I believe, I think I was in kindergarten. So I think maybe they got divorced in 94. I want to say I was in kindergarten. Okay. 
Okay. So you were pretty young, yeah. Yeah. I was it was before I had any memories. My parents were married from like 68 to 81, and I was born in 80. My brother was born in 76. So my brother was about five, and I was about mm-hmm. 18, 18 months when they um divorced. So do you want to start by sort of describing your dad a little bit? Yeah. Um it's interesting. I've been talking a lot with a few other people this month kind of about our dads, which is interesting because I like, I very rarely talk about my dad too in depth with anyone. Um, So it's kind of interesting that this ended up on your radar just because in my personal life, this has been a a reoccurring conversation the past, you know, month. And I think it's, you know, it's because it's the holiday season. And I also think as we get older, we start to think about, like, especially if your parents are gone, you know, who, who they were and, you know, how that, how that impacts us. And, you know, how was how the father I had, how has that impacted me as a father? One of the things that I took that are here now. So just that, as I guess, as an aside. But I think as I look back on my dad, there are a lot of things I realize through his actions that made him a good father. And then there were a lot of complicated things that were not so great. Um, my mom's dad, who's still alive, who's not in his late nineties, always says, both my mom's parents were still alive who were in their late nineties, say, you know, your dad was an odd, was a strange person, but whenever we came to visit, he was always playing catch with his kids. He was always, you know, spending time with his kids. And I think, you know, if you look at that, like a lot of dads aren't even physically there. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he was very present. And then when we would go stay at his house, because my parents had a joint custody situation. As I got a little bit older, it was almost kind of like living in like a frat house in some fun ways. My dad was very, my dad was a very funny person. He, you know, in the nineties, we would watch, stay up late on Saturdays. He liked to watch Saturday night, Saturday night live with us. Um, we called it so, Sunday morning, Sunday morning taped. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so there were a lot of good things, but then he was very emotionally distant. He wasn't a, a gentle, vulnerable person. Very rarely can I remember, if ever, you know, physical affection. I remember sometimes when I was a little kid, if I was on the phone with him at the end of the call, I'd be like, say, I love you. And he'd be like, okay, bye. You know, he just wasn't for all of the things that went into making him the person he became. He just wasn't really able to be a vulnerable, gentle, soft person. So a lot of a lot of conflicting complexities, I think, with them. But like you know, we're people, and you get to a certain point where you stop mythologizing your parents, and you start looking at them as real, you know, multifaceted, complex people. And sure, sure, that's, that's, that's what he was. Right. Yeah, we're all human, and um, this is something that I. Some people say like every everybody's doing the best they can. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like that idea, um, that we're all doing the best we can. There's a part of me that resists it 
because I think it takes a lot of effort to do the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And most people don't mm-hmm. give 100% effort in every part of their lives. And, and, and you know, it, realistically, from a psychological standpoint, we're all doing what we can, maybe, but not the best mm-hmm. we can. So I, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And um, I think I, tr- I try to do that, especially with like my students, when I'm teaching and with my friends and, and with with my family, it's hard. It's hard to give the benefit mm-hmm. of the doubt. I don't feel like I was raised in a way that allowed me to feel a, a lot of the benefit of the doubt. My mom was very strict. My dad was not there. His house, we'd go to his house every other weekend. It was like a break. It was like a, you were mm-hmm. talking about a frat house. It, it wasn't a frat house with him, but it was movies, Saturday Night Live, the Patriots being horrible on Sunday mm-hmm. uh, in, in the early right. 90s, late, late 80s, early 90s. But it wasn't playing with him. It was playing with my brother. It was playing with my mm-hmm. brother who was four years older. And it, he was reading on the couch or having a drink or having a cigarette or reading in his bedroom or, you know, he was happy to have us there and he was a kind presence and he was a good listener and 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 he did he was interested in our lives but he wasn't active physically with us i was going to just say about the doing the best they can and like the the complexities it's really mm-hmm. really hard for me to go to that place where yeah my mom and my dad did the best they could cuz i yeah I, I mean as a father your your daughter's almost 2 can you imagine not living with her by your own choice no, I can't. Um, right? It would take some horrible thing for you to do well, that. Yeah, it, it's a really, what you're saying is very interesting and very true. And I think it is hard to give the benefit of the doubt, especially the closer people are to you. Because, it's, you know, why? Why Why were these things the way they were? And I think on the one hand, I, I feel he did do the best he could because the way he showed affection and vulnerability and tenderness was by playing sports with us. And mm-hmm. you know, playing, we had an electric football set, which I thought mm-hmm. was really cool. We played that. You know, we did all these like things like that. And I know a bunch of my friends didn't have dads who weren't even physically around. But then on the other hand, it's, you know, why couldn't you have said you loved me? Why couldn't you have been physically affectionate? And it's, it's, so it is hard to say, you know, is that the best he can do? I, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone does the best they can do, and that's okay. Yeah. It's just that yeah, phrase. I think that's that, true that, too. that phrase to me is, is a hard one. The best you can do. We're all well, doing the best we can. I'll put, it, I'll put it to you like this. I know that for me as a parent, some of the strongest lessons I can take from the the dad that I had are that I want to show my kids that it's okay to be gentle and vulnerable and it's, and it's okay to be a human being. Mm -hmm. Very rarely did I ever, it's hard for me to say that I really knew my dad because he never was somebody who would open up about who Mm -hmm. he was. And he passed away. You were relatively young, right? Yeah. I yeah, I was uh, 14, pretty young. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, in, you know, to the benefit of the doubt there, maybe he would have had he, had he lived longer. But, you know, I think, I think there's still openness you can have with your, you know, a 10-year-old, 6-year-old that yeah. I, I didn't get. Um, right. You know, all of this stuff comes from somewhere. It's like the way yeah. his father was. 
Hearts definitely certainly must have impacted him. And I know I was I was going to ask you, what do you know about that home where he grew yeah, up? So he used to say, um, where was it? He lived in a couple of places. His dad was from Hartford, Connecticut, I believe. And then they lived in a few different places and eventually settled in Bedford, Massachusetts. I'm not sure what year they moved there, but I think certainly all of high school and possibly all of middle school was in Bedford, Massachusetts. I know he would say your grandfather is a good grandfather, but he was a bad dad. He used to say that to us a lot. Um, And one of the things I know about his childhood is when he would get in a lot of trouble, my grandfather would take him into the bathroom and take his belt off. And he would, he would hit his belt against the toilet. He was like emulating, like beating my dad. And I think the reason was, was because he wanted his wife, my grandmother to think he was hitting my dad with the belt. Yeah. That's a, that's an odd detail that I've actually heard another uh, friend talk about that, like the mother wanting the father to hit the son specifically Mm -hmm. and the father not saying I won't do it. So pretending. Yeah. Which is such a bizarre, a bizarre dynamic there. Well, I think it's, I think it's that generation. And I think that's a big part of why it was so hard for him to be just a vulnerable person because that was the, that was the household he grew up in. So Mm -hmm. I think his generation of when he was, you know, a kid, I think like our grandparents as parents were just yeah. shitty. They're just really <laughs> shitty. The fifties. Yeah. I yeah, I think they uh if you think about they were children during the depression, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And I know I, that I know that his grand my my dad's grandfather, my great grandfather, something one of the few things I know about him is that he was he came from an abusive home and he ran away when he was a teenager to join the military because mm. I think he just got to the point where he couldn't take getting abused anymore. Mm. Wow. I know he came from abuse. So, you know, these things, they, they don't come from nothing usually. No, no, no. They're cycles for sure. When your dad died, do you want to go into that at all? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, you were a freshman in high school or so, 14. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Just, yeah, early in, early in high school. And what happened? So he got into a car accident. He was riding his, and, and something that I think, as I said earlier, just that I'm thinking about right now about mythologizing your parents. My dad was like a very large, uh, he was, you know, six foot six. He'd been a college athlete. He was stayed very active. He was kind of a very larger than life figure, you know, literally. And so he was riding his bike to work because he used to do that. So he would ride his bike a pretty good distance to work often. And there was, I believe, a faulty traffic light. So it was a situation where a car and his bike converged on each other. Mm. Yeah. And uh, that must have just turned your world upside down. Yeah, no, I mean, it it definitely sucked. Um, And there was a lot of fallout from that, too, because, I mean, obviously, that's bad enough. But then we had uh, his sister was just a terrible person. 
And we ended up having to go to court with her over some stuff. So it's, you know, all that's going. And then I, I'm, I, you know, after that, my, myself, my brother, my mom's side of the family, we all just became completely estranged from my dad's side of the family. Mm. So the fallout lingers and you're sitting there trying to piece together. How could this happen? Yeah. Um, did you have um, like school? Oh man. Yeah, it was a mess. I and mean, I was in school when it happened. I remember mm-hmm. the principal came and got me. I remember I was in the science lab. Principal came and got me, called my mom. Maybe the first thing he said was, you're not in trouble. But I was like, this is that. I mean, it's like, <laughs> whenever somebody tells you you're not in trouble, it usually it's means not it. good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wish I mom. was in trouble today. What's going on? Yeah. So I called my mom. My mom and my brother came and picked me up. Um, we went to the hospital. And then... Yeah, it was just it was a total mess. Um, and I remember I had to go to a guidance counselor at least once a week, which it's also kind of weird. Yeah, kind of almost like forced therapy, You're which right. is ne- never like an effective way to do therapy. I, mm-hmm. I, I think. I mean, maybe right. maybe you would disagree, but it's a hard thing because I, I can imagine the school trying to support your family and you, and then. How do you get, I mean, it would sort of have to be a very intense conversation with your mother who would then sit yeah. down with you, like basically trying to persuade you to go, if not the school forcing. Yeah. So I, I just remember feeling like it was forced. And I remember there was a, I don't remember how many times a week, it might've been once a week, but I remember I had to like leave class like once a week and go to the guidance counselor. And I just, it's like, ah. You remember the scene? Can you set the scene? The awkward is like, this is like Freaks and Geeks or something. You're like slowly, slowly like dragged into the, and you're like a horrible old person who's begging you to talk. So this was the beginning of high school. And suffice it to say, I really hated high school. And this this was like a a pretty solid chunk of why I hated high school so much. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, honestly, when you're, you know, that young, or even when you're any age, everyone's different. But I think sometimes just silence is, is all right, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, someone so. just sitting with you. Yeah. Um, talking about supporting other people in general and that idea of sometimes the most powerful way to support someone who's grieving, for example, mm-hmm. is to just... Oh, it was Rob Delaney, who who's an actor and a comedian, um, and his show Catastrophe is really good. It's a parenting whirlwind chaos, you know. I'll have to check that out then, yeah. Um, called Catastrophe. It takes place in London. He's from the Boston area, but he lives in London. And um, mm-hmm. he he lost his son to a brain brain cancer. And, mm-hmm. and basically his son died before he was three. I think he was like two and a half. And he spent much of mm. the two years of his life being treated for cancer, this baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and he just wrote a book about um, this process of losing his son, cancer and parenting and love. And he, and he's saying, I think it was with Mark Maron. He was interviewed and he was talking about people don't know how to handle grief. A lot of mm-hmm. times they want to compare their own 
you know, oh yeah, me too. This is what, you know, what am I, am I going to pretend my dad died too? Because you're talking about your dad. No, I'm not going to like make up a story about my, I'm listening. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be an idiot and try to like, oh yeah, same thing. But, um, but people do weird things when they want to, you know, mirror the, the person who's talking and is in pain and they want to like comfort, but the way of comforting is to say like to me, me too. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not appropriate. And and sometimes the, Rob Delaney is saying sometimes the best thing you can do to someone who's in like this severe kind of new grief is just to sit next to them and put your arm around them and say nothing at all. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I, uh, I think, you know, everyone is different. And I think, you know, when you're at different points in your life or dealing with different situations, one thing might be better than, and, you know, something else might be better, but I definitely think at that time in my life, it would have been better if it was just, you know, somebody sitting next to me or even me just sitting by myself, you know, just, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's, I, I don't know. This is 2003. The world was so different 20 years ago. Sure. So I don't know. I don't know what the, the school, what they're. They tried they, with this guidance counselor, but it didn't work for you. Ex- yeah, exactly. What about your brother and your mom at that time? How much older is your brother? Four years. He was either a college freshman or a college sophomore, but I think he was a college freshman. Was was he a comfort to you? Not really. Because I just think, you know, it's only four years, but that's a big, it's a big four years. You know, it's one, somebody's... Yeah, starting high school, somebody starting college. So you're just at such different points and you're just doing such different things right. that I think we both were, you know, it was very traumatic for both of us and we were both grieving um, and in pain in our own ways. But I just don't think there was much we had to offer each other. Yeah. Maybe if I could go back and do it again, we would have been more there for each other. But well, it is hard I, with college. My brother was away at college when I was a freshman in high school, too. And I, mm-hmm. yeah, I understand. What about your mom? My mom definitely, to go back to, the, did they do the best they could? My mom did the best she could do. And I, as an adult, as a parent now, I feel like I, I can say, I, I feel confident that she did the best she could do. Mm-hmm. But she was just in so far over her head. Mm-hmm. it was it just wasn't I don't think she did a particularly good job mm-hmm. uh, but you know you're talking about like a a teenage boy who's, mm-hmm. you know had this earth shattering thing happen and now I'm what now I'm kind of wayward to school I was cutting class all the time I, you know, I wasn't making it easy on her she did I like you know not to keep saying it but I do think she did the best she could yeah. But I, I wasn't making it easy on her, and she wasn't, you know, well-equipped to handle the situation. Sure. Yeah. When I had darker times in high school, sophomore year and, and junior year, I had a good experience with my guidance counselor, who I think was, I was very lucky. He was a rare, mm-hmm. he was a rare person. He was very attuned to teenagers and compassionate and 
a positive energy kind of person. Um, and, mm-hmm. and not in a sort of happy-go-lucky way, more like in a just a genuinely interested and kind mm-hmm. person. Um, and he'd lost his own son mm-hmm. to, sui- to suicide two mm-hmm. years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had happened in front of him. Oh, my God. And this was an incredibly compassionate person. This is just like, he had three boys, I believe. And uh, this was his youngest. So this is two years later that I'm basically going into his counseling office more than once a week of my own volition, because I don't want to be in 10th grade in my, in my biology class. I don't want to, I'm feeling all this stuff at once. I'm, Mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff going on in my with my dad my brothers at college I'm I'm going through a lot and I needed that kind of a refuge within within the high school experience and it sounds like you know we had opposite experiences and in, in that yeah you know just as I'm thinking back and reflecting back on it right now and talking to you I think that what I needed was to just kind of like hide for a little bit you know, mm-hmm. be like, I have this mental image for myself, like pulling a turtleneck o- over my head, yeah. um, sitting in the back of the class. Like, I think that's yeah. what I needed for a little bit. And I think if everyone had just let me do that for two months, yeah, I think I would have ended up, it would have been fine or as fine as it could have been. Mm-hmm. But everybody was, or at least I felt like everybody was trying to force me to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, just not leave me alone. I think that just made high school for me an impossible situation because I felt that at the, you know, at the very beginning. And then I felt that way all the way until the end of high school. It's tough. It's tough. I feel, I feel like it's hard to be. My experience with high school was all over the place and my best moments were when, and my most comfortable moments were, you know, with my close friends that I had met Mm -hmm. toward the end of high school. Finding a comfort zone was so difficult for me because yeah I could just I, I I'm very sensitive to other people and mm-hmm. um when people are bullshitting and when people are posturing and the social status yeah you know, it's also difficult for me to stomach you know mm-hmm. to to even just like be around the people who are toxic yeah I, it was just I wanted to be elsewhere I, I yeah. wanted to be elsewhere for so much of it. and um, Well, I, I've thought about this, not to get completely off topic, but something I've thought about in the last year or so, just as I've kind of, I think, been reflecting back on my life a little bit more. I think what would have been the perfect solution for me, and this, especially at the time, would have been super unorthodox, but I think if I had dropped out got my GED at 16 and enrolled at Bunker Hill Community College at 16 and just started taking college classes I think my whole my life would have been so much better you would have been able to remove all of that social stuff and this is my choice And, and I would have been you know stacking college credits you know that's what I had to do at 18 anyway because I did so poorly in high school I had to start at Bunker Hill and then I transferred elsewhere and then, you know, I did, I had a pretty all in all solid college experience. I enjoyed being in college for the most part. You know, some things were hard, but that's life. Um, so I think if I had started that two years earlier, it would have just, it would have been the perfect solution. Yeah. 
Yeah, I took a detour after starting college right after high school. And I definitely mm-hmm. could, have, could have used a year in between to, to go somewhere and realize yeah. I, I didn't have to escape from <laughs> the things I thought I had to escape from. So, but yeah. you know, there's a lot of pressure. And what, talking about parenting, one thing that I really want to make sure I do as a, as a father is not put extra pressure uh, yeah. on my on my daughter. I'm playing checkers with her an hour ago, you know, and mm-hmm. she's just old enough to start playing board games that are not, you know, the simplest thing. Like they have these, I don't know if you have seen any of these kids board games. There's a lot of like, they're not board games. I'll just, I don't know what they are. They have yeah. cards and stuff, but like checkers is pretty simple, you know? Right. So I'm like, she's, she's five. We can, we can do checkers. And, um, I'm not going to let her win, but I am going to let her, you know, do well. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's like that fine line between making sure she's engaged and enjoying it and understanding the rules, but not just bending over backwards and saying you're going to win every time you play. Um, yeah, I think that's the way to. I think that's the way to go. I'm about to beat her, and and I'm and I'm showing her if you move there. That'll mm-hmm. be the end of the game. I'll I'll jump over you, and that'll be it. And she starts to you know get really upset. I said, I'm not going to do it. I'm showing you this is what would happen. If, mm-hmm. if you move if you move here, I'm going to, the game will be over now. And she's like, well, I don't want it to be over. I said, well, don't move there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then I'm just like, we can stop right here. I think like, I think, I think the, the, the gentle kind of nudges into problem solving is a really good approach to parenting. You know, let's, let's work on your problem solving ability. Well, at best, I could give you just little gentle nudges and do it. Right. Yeah. She she wants to be the boss of everyone and everything and tell you what you can and can't do. So board games are a way to get out of that I control everything kind of universe that an only mm-hmm. child can. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, but I had a very competitive brother who was four years older who beat the hell out of me at almost every board game we played. So I'm not looking to reproduce the super competitive, have to win at everything child. Well, I, I think, I don't know, I'm in kind of a weird headspace head in general these days, but do do people need to be competitive? Is it, is, is that? Without us even trying in kindergarten, they're, they're already. Yeah. They're, tr- they're always trying to race each other. You know, it's like, yeah. it's ingrained, it's ingrained in them. Well, competition is fun. I love, you know, I, I love playing sports. I love sports. I love playing right. basketball. I, I love the competition, but I don't think you need to approach life in this, in this, no. like everything's this competitive gish gallop of nonsense. Yeah, we don't have to compete for everything. I mean, that's part of the problem with the way we live right now is there's not enough for everybody because we're exactly. so cutthroat and greedy. How did you get through some of the darker times, would you say? Your dad's accident and then mm-hmm. high school being really tough. What are some of the things that you look back on and you think those things pulled me through? Uh, certainly sports, basketball. Uh, mm-hmm. I think another 
big component of it was just kind of my ego. Um, and I say that meaning I had this really strong feeling and maybe this wasn't even true. I think you get older and you care less about what people think about you, or at least, you know, I hope, I hope we do. But I felt that there was this perception of me, especially when I started to cut a lot of school that people thought I was lesser. And I just had this feeling like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to show them. Mm-hmm. It was really just that feeling. Of, I want to show these people who, and maybe I was imagining, maybe people didn't think that way about me. Just, some probably did and some probably didn't, you know. Yeah, yeah, most likely that's, that's true. It motivated me. Uh, and I certainly didn't want to go to community. I certainly didn't want to start college at community college, but I had this feeling like, well, you you did so bad in high school, you don't really have that many options. And it's kind of like, you know, everybody in my head thinks you're like this kind of lost, lost person. I just wanted to show that I had worth, show that I had value. You pushed yourself. Yeah. With that in mind. Graduated magna cum laude. I did really well academically in college. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of it was just feeling like, well, people in high school thought you were kind of a loser. So like, let's sh- let's like let's show them that I'm not. Sure, it can certainly be motivating, and and it's also just timing. I think like so much of learning is self motivation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, it's hard to be self motivated when you're going through traumatic experiences. One hundred percent, and I think something that is really strange to me is how rigid people are in their thinking of how to motivate a person how 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 do you get the most out of somebody what does school look like I think people are really rigid in 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 the idea of what school should look like and I think the reality is the human experience isn't one size fits all right different things motivate different people I know there's you know there's a common curriculum and all that but not everyone wakes up in the morning able to experience school the same way. Right. That's true. And good teachers in a smaller class mm-hmm. have the have the attention and energy to motivate each student maybe uniquely or in a way that will help them. But yeah. But sometimes it's not possible. Big class sizes, chaotic, you know, behavior situations. It yeah, no, and hard. I just, I'd be hard. I just got swallowed up by that too. I think had it been possible for me at the time to get into a tiny classroom with like eight, eight other students, mm-hmm. I think I would have been fine, but that just wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. And when you're in the back of the classroom, there's a certain energy and stigma. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's almost always you're, you're later. You're not there at the beginning, so you have to sit at the back. Or there's the kid who gets there early and can't wait to mess around and is going well, to then, sit at the back. Then, then there's the weird stratified back then. They had the honors classes, and then they yeah. had, you know, they just had the different levels of classes. And if you yeah. weren't in, like, the honors class to go, yeah. you know, why, why is that guy just in, like, the, like the dumb class? Yeah, you get labeled pretty early before high school. Usually yeah, especially in Greater Boston, there's a lot of tracking. 
Yeah, certainly. And it's a hard thing. There's definitely social justice issues with tracking. The kids who could go either way in terms of being motivated, they're really at risk for what track they get put in Mm -hmm. early. I mean, my mom was a second grade teacher and and on school committees in her her school district that she was in and in in Arlington where we were. And um, Mm -hmm. having a strong advocate makes such a big difference. Yep. Um, and other people, you know, parents might not be able to ever make the parent-teacher conferences or might not be able to advocate or... I think a lot of people have that a similar feeling that I had at the time where, oh, people think I'm, you know, a loser, I'm nothing. And then what happens is... You meet those low expectations when those are your expectations. Yep. Exactly. And then it's you called the burden up... of low expectations. Exactly. And then you, yeah, and then you end up not living the life you could have lived if you just had someone in your corner saying, you know what, I, I see the potential. In you. I see, your, I see that you have talent and just, I believe in you. Yeah. School is a cauldron. It's why there's so much debate about it and why public school is so important. Um, but it's also, it's one of those things. She's in kindergarten. <laughs> If it was just my salary, there's no way she could be going to the school she's going to. Yeah. If you have one child and you have the opportunity to send your child to a place that has small class sizes, the attention, the support, the social, emotional learning, the arts, why wouldn't I want that for her? And at the same time, and at the same time, I'm a hypocrite because I'm completely frustrated with how little people focus on public education today Mm -hmm. and how many people disregard it don't want to support it um, well i think i think this kind of goes complicated into what we were just talking about with competitiveness and it's life is inherently unfair people are born with certain advantages people are born with certain disadvantages and that creates a lot of the competitiveness and it you know starts with the parents and it pushed down to the kids and it's you need to be competitive so you can get ahead so you can get to where person X is just because they were born with these advantages you don't have. Sure. The, the whole race from, from the beginning, what I want for her is not to get into Harvard or something. Um, Mm -hmm. What I want for her is to be supported and nurtured and not bullied. I want her to be able to embrace her compassion and her generosity and her leadership and her artistic abilities, I often felt stifled. I often felt I couldn't be myself. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I don't want that for her. I don't, you know, and, and of course, being socialized, going through experiences, it makes you stronger. You you mm-hmm. learn who you are through adversity, yes. But you want the best for your child in terms of support and and comfort and nurturing. And if you really want that, and that's serious value in your life, then it's hard to say, let's just see what happens if we send her to XYZ. You know, as a parent, I think you need to equip your kids to be able to go out into the world and handle that it's a hard world because it is. But I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I want the world to to not be so hard. Or not be so evil. <laughs> or not be so evil. Yeah. And I think yeah. I, I think 
something I got from my mom, which I'm really happy about is I think I'm an empathetic and compassionate person. And those weren't values that I got from my dad, but those are the most important values that I want to give to my kids. Mm -hmm. And when you're with a a two-year-old, almost two-year-old, Mm-hmm. You see how you see how sensitive they are and you see how much they absorb the energy you, you bring in. Yeah. It gets more and more obvious as they get three, four and five and trying to get them to regulate their emotions, trying to get yeah. them to, to use their words, all of it. Yeah, I just today she was with a kitten and just watching her be so loving towards this kid just made me think, you know, like people for the most part come into the world gentle and it's yeah. the world hardens them up. Yes. I, I wish it wasn't so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One way it's more connected is having conversations and mm-hmm. being able to talk about some of these things. So I appreciate your, your willingness to do that. more about fatherhood for you what are some things that have surprised you about the last two years with your daughter things you couldn't have imagined well certainly the worry it's it's you you think before you have kids when you see parents being so extra about you know everything and then when you're in that position You're just, I mean, I worry so much about, you know, her, I mean, everything. I don't, I don't want her to get physically hurt. I don't want her to, you know, if she's climbing on the couch, I don't want her to fall. Um, But then there's also, you know, if she's crying, when is she crying, you know, is she hungry? Definitely the the just amount of worry, because I think everyone has this vision of themselves when they they think, oh, when I become a parent, I'm going to be that cool, laid-back parent. And, you know, there certainly are some cool, laid-back parents, but you know, it's it's hard to be that. And I think if you're too laid-back, that's the energy they get from you, that you're neglectful, you're passive. Yeah. You're passive. There's, there's two types of neglect that they talk about with childhood, and one of them is active. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of neglect everyone kind of imagines when they think of neglect. And then there's passive neglect, which is, not enough attention, not enough nurturing, not enough boundaries, not enough limits. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, there are plenty of times I feel like I have to rein myself in where I don't want to be overbearing. Um, so just for example, we go to the playground a lot and I don't want to be a, a, you know, a hover parent at the playground. I want her to experience the playground and I want her to you know, do, do what she wants, play as she wants, but you're, you know, it's that constant battle with yourself because, you know, you don't want her to climb up something that she's not ready to climb up and then fall or right. you, know, you don't want, you know, any, anything that bad that could happen with other kids. You, But at the same time, it's important that they learn how to interact with other people. So it's that constant push and pull. And I, yeah, definitely wasn't, expecting myself to be like this I didn't I wasn't prepared for it so you thought you'd keep the worry to yourself and be 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 chill with her 
It turns exactly. Out, it turns out you really love her in an amazing way, and it's hard to be so chill. <laughs> yeah, no, and it, it's it's funny. Because... People people say this: your child's like your heart walking around outside your body. Yeah, no, I, I get that it. that resonated with me when I heard that. Well, I always used to get so annoyed because I felt like my mom was so overbearing, but it's just like I understand now why she was because she had the same she had the same feelings of worry. And something she used to say to me when I was in high school and I was cutting class all the time, she'd be like, you know, it's like, I feel like I'm watching you walking into oncoming traffic and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's overbearing. But And did um, did you say, I I, I am? I'm walking into oncoming traffic. That's what I I need to do right now. (laughs) I think I I probably just like rolled my eyes, you know, did whatever I was doing. But um, yeah. It, it, it it's hard and I want to do better than she did. And I want to not be overbearing like that, but I, I definitely understand why she was the way she was because it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And if you grow up, I, your mom grew up in a Jewish household. I, I think Yeah, my yes. mom did. My mom did too. Her mom grew up in New York city in the, in the twenties mm-hmm. and uh, actually in the Bronx, uh, mm-hmm. which was the country in the 1940s. Yeah. And my uh, my mom's dad grew up um, in Manhattan in the, mm-hmm. in the teens in the teens, but um, yeah, New York Jews um, anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. we'd go to my grandmother's house and uh, we had an agenda of what was going to happen for the next three days down to the hour, and uh, don't go in the kitchen ever. Mm-hmm. You know, the, just the it was it was got to the point where it was so over the top that I would like pretend my hand was caught in the door because she was so nervous when she would yeah. close the door <laughs> yeah. so she would see everybody hands in hands in close the door and i go ah! and then she'd freak right. out you know it's that kind of anxiety breeds anxiety um well yeah and, yeah and you have to cut it somehow you have to cut through it somehow so you just be you you do crazy stuff you become silly you be, you got to break through well you have to live it's you know, I'm a very anxious person and, it, and it's, it's hard. It, it, it becomes hard to live in the moment when you're so anxious all the time. And I think, and I think I'm an anxious person, but I'm less anxious than my mom was. And I, I certainly other people in her family. Um, and so I'm you know, how, how can you ever, how can you ever just live in the moment when you're that anxious? You don't, you don't do it very often. Yeah. Um, Anxiety is just, it's just uh, that need to control, you know, and, and we all have a need to control. I mean, Sudoku, what is mm-hmm. Sudoku if not a need to control? Well, like, I think, you know, what, so you need an orderly, you know, you know what I think it, it, it's about, um, I think it's death. I think it's one thing we have absolutely no control over is we're all going to die. And I right. think that's so scary. Um, and maybe it shouldn't be because we all do it, but I think that's the, the birth of all anxieties. We're going to die and there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. It's the ultimate fear, the human condition, knowing we're going to die. So, and and, in every moment, it's kind of like, you know, that it's, it's lurking, but you're also (laughs) trying to, you're also trying to live. When you see your tiny little child, 
bobbling around and about to go up something high you yeah. know death is around the corner unfortunately this idea and and i have a neighbor across the street who goes he's a nurse so he's seen all this crazy stuff he was an emt he was emergency room nurse he's seen all this stuff his way of coping with that fear is ah, it's not a fatal fall you know mm-hmm. all the all the little he's i'll oh, let her figure it out yeah we're always aware of what could go wrong also if you think about biology we are alive today because our ancestors were worried mm-hmm. the ones That's who did the ones who were the laid back chill ones are dead because they got eaten mm-hmm. by other and humans on the donner party no ma- yeah good uh good paul <laughs> But no matter no matter what you do, no matter how society changes, I think that's always going to be true to an extent. It's that this person was lucky enough or cautious enough or worried enough that they were able to live long enough and procreate and so on and so forth. Combination of of athletic ability and constant problem solving. Yeah. But the problem with constant problem solving is you create the problems that don't exist to then solve. And that's anxiety, creating the problems that don't have to be there or making the small problems bigger, you know? Well, well, worry doesn't, I mean, worry at its core does have a lot of utility, which is to keep you alive. But when we get into the day-to-day stuff, worry has absolutely no utility. It's life is going to happen no matter what. You can worry about it or you can, you know, find a way to relax and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, there's the, nothing there's no, there's nothing I can do to stop the fact that it's going to be tomorrow and then tomorrow it's going to be tomorrow. You know what I mean? Sure. There's sure. like I have no I have no control over that. So I can yeah. worry about I can worry about the day-to-day stuff, the the minute-to-minute stuff between now and tomorrow or I can do my best to just kind of enjoy the ride. Right. I'm talking about being present. Being present for me unless it's writing or reading Mm -hmm. it has to be outside it has to it cannot be sitting on a couch like i'm trying to meditate sometimes i'm not very good at it and and i don't judge myself as oh you're bad meditating i'm just not able to simplify and i'm not able to redirect my thoughts back so i walk and walking is a way of meditating in a way and if you walk slowly and you notice what's around you that's a kind of mindful walking I'm trying to get back to playing basketball and playing sports and being active mm-hmm. because that was before COVID how I stayed present and losing that during the pandemic really had a, took an emotional toll on me. And it's just because I haven't really gotten back to consistently playing sports or being active. I still yeah. feel that, that I have a harder time being present just because I've lost that part of my life. So I, I need to get that back. Yeah, I think sweating does it. I think exerting your body gets you out of your mind a little bit, which eases eases things. But yeah, there's there's the physiological part of it, and then there's just the experiential part of it. The kind of four walls and sameness creating a kind of bland. Yeah, and then you and then the screens amp that amp that up. Yeah. I talk about that in therapy all the time, but I, I have to find a way to get less screen time because it, it just amplifies everything. What makes it hard for you to limit? There's a certain, there's certainly a level of, of addiction. Um, 
And then I think another part of it is as we've become more isolated these past few years, it's a way to connect with other people, but it's also counterproductive because it's not the healthiest way to connect with other people. Right. It's, it's like uh, crumbs. You're getting exactly. crumbs of connection. Exactly. And, and, I, and I think, I, I think there's a lot of utility with uh, the online world, but I think you get the most out of it if you're one limiting and two, you have a big life in your present real life. Right. It's adding to, it's not the center. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of people, myself included, have seen the the proportions of that drastically shift over the past few years, where it was small online right. life, big real life, and now it's small real life, big online life. And it and it almost works, um, it perpetuates itself. It's because like it's practice. Having having a genuine conversation actually is a practice. And yeah. you know, you know, when you haven't spoken for like a week because you were sick or something mm-hmm. or haven't left your house for a while or whatever. Oh yeah. Wait a minute. Having an interaction is different than being in my head, you know, <laughs> or yep. just being with my daughter. I feel like people insulate themselves and then they go with that insulation because it's safer and more comfortable. The improvised conversation is is uncomfortable. You don't know what it will be. You don't know what the phone call will lead to or how long. I, I think conversely, though, there's actually, I'm sure you've, you've heard a lot lately because this is something that Jane talked about. And not something we need to get into, but like the horseshoe theory of people where if somebody is extreme, it becomes a horseshoe. So two people who are on opposite and opposite extremes from each other are actually really close because people it's like ideologies like horseshoe shape not like a straight line um i think there is something that happens in your real life too when you get into this mentality where oh i need to be active i need to do this i need to do and instead of having meaningful quality encounters with other people it becomes all superficial it's all speed dating or something exactly and i think that does that that's something about that is similar to being too online where it's not fulfilling so you end up kind of having that same void even though you're constantly with people constantly engaging constantly talking it's not there's nothing there it's just empty well back to empty calories yeah empty calories back to high school that's that's how high school felt you know it was a bunch of very brief interactions if you could make them feel good, then you'd have these very brief, positive, you know, whatever, but Mm -hmm. they weren't, they weren't actual conversations, you know, because a people didn't have time B they weren't going to say what they really felt in front of other people. C you were passing in the class, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So all of that. Yeah. I no, I totally agree that quantity does not mean quality. Recently, there's more of this sort of push toward 
weed out the people that don't matter to you to have the more fulfilling uh, connections with the people that do matter to you. The problem with this to me is you're always looking for the weeds. (laughs) You're never actually opening yourself up. It's like the person that won't go on the fifth date. I just listened to this podcast. This woman's been on Tinder for 10 years and she wrote Mm -hmm. a thing in, I think New York magazine about her experience of being on Tinder for 10 years. She's now 36. She was mm-hmm. 26. She's still not in a committed relationship. She hasn't. She has yet to go on a fifth date. Mm. Ten years of Tinder. I'm not trying to judge her 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 choice or her experience. I'm trying to put it in a context here. Like living online allows you to think of opportunities all the time, mm-hmm. which is which is broadening. There are oppo- opportunities. Life is not just in front of me. There are opportunities out there that I don't see. And it keeps you from committing Mm -hmm. to anything because there's always another opportunity. So it's this catch-22 where things could always be a little bit more interesting or better because the novelty is always more interesting. The person you don't know but know a tiny bit about is always more interesting than the reality of the person once you get to know them warts and all. If you're living in this imaginary state of kind of idealized. The amount of time we all spend online now, I think, is create this idealized. Or maybe maybe, maybe people have always been like this. I don't know. But I think there's just this idealized version of human connection and another person and and, and interaction that, that we all want. But that prevents those things from actually happening. There's a level of spontaneity that you need to have a real human connection. For sure. So if you're creating this kind of this uh, rigid path of, of what you want with another person, I think it's impossible to actually like make it a real connection. Right. And, and so then people turn to dating for it to be purely physical. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in the moment, they say, oh, that's all I want. You know, so I'm not disappointed. Mm-hmm. But but to me, that's saying I can't handle the real thing. I can't handle yeah. because because you don't have to bring any of your truth, messy truth to uh, a hookup, mm-hmm. you know, but you have to bring your messy truth to the morning after. There There is a lot of impersonal connection, um, or at least feels like there's a lot of that these days i think that has a lot to do with why so many people are unhappy there's a lot of reasons why we're all very depressed right now i mean the last few years have certainly been terrible and the world does not look so great but human connection feels really good it does it feels like it's become really hard to come by yeah i mean and you read the articles about friendships like the number of friendships that people have i I saw that yeah when i was teaching high school this was 2015 2016 i was teaching high school for a couple years i was aware of it but i was amazed at how deep it went this fear of trust Mm -hmm. in other people there were people people were having sex i mean people were getting pregnant having babies people were definitely sexual but they were not in relationships at all and they also Mm -hmm. were like why would you even want that? Yeah. It's horrible to want and need somebody like that because they'll let you down. 
Yeah, it, it was that it was that sort of overwhelming ethos among the kids. And I know that, you know, dating has always been messy and hard for teenagers, but it really it was sad to see trust be so. I, I want to say feared. Mm-hmm. To, to fear what i mean you have to know trust to give trust it doesn't it doesn't well, come out of nothing right so if to, you don't to, see it to bring this back you know talking about like fathers and you know fathers of our father's generation um it's i want i mean i wonder like what's going on at home that is not helping this current generation be better equipped to engage in real human connection with each other and i know it's not just like high school kids it's you know i'm talking about feeling itself i know it's i think texting texting over even phone calls is one thing Mm -hmm. like what is an emoji it's a fun simple symbol of a feeling or thing right it's a symbol it's a short Mm -hmm. a shortened version say what you're feeling but you have a a list of symbols to pick it's great if you're learning a new language like my esl students because it's mm-hmm. simple it's a symbol i can get there i know it without knowing the word but if you're trying to build your emotional vocabulary and mm-hmm. you and you're and you're not reading so you're not gaining vocabulary through books and emojis are right there and that's the tendency you're short-circuiting your ability to even think about your feelings because it's all just which one of these 20 faces represents me. Well, when I think about my own high school experience, the absolute best part by miles and miles and miles was hanging out with my friends. And what we didn't have at the time were smartphones. It was all actual you know, being present with each other. And a lot of it was making really offensive, really hurtful jokes at each other's expense. But right. at least there was the human roasting roasting each other as a form of connection. Exactly. Exactly. When I would accidentally say something, they'd be, Oh, it's too early, Mr. Hall. It's too early to roast. I'm like, I didn't even mean that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're constantly roasting each other. And you know, that is a form of bonding. Yeah, it's also possible that we're just we've just become the the old, the old men that that we the old used grouches. to we used to you know say we'll never be that person. Maybe maybe we. It's possible. I think if you raise your daughter the the way you'd like to, she's not going to emoji you to death when she's twenty. Uh, and 30. Yeah, I think she'll actually talk to you. And I think the parents who will emoji their kids are the ones who. You know, it's all lost already in terms of connection. Mm-hmm. Like there um, are no short, there are no shortcuts to connections, in my opinion. I do think there something. I don't know, it's hard to speak in like generalities. I get the sense from a lot of parents who are, you know, my age and in our general age range, that the way they want to parent is much more similar to how we grew. They want to create a household that's much more similar to the way we grew up in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, I think some some definitely have that value system. You grew up a little bit after I did. I grew up in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s, but 
it depends on how your childhood in terms of technology i think what the expectations are on the kids when they're home i mean in terms of other things you know i was i was allowed to roam the neighborhood like i was like you know a wild dog i I don't i don't think i don't think that's something i would you know i i I don't think that's going to be something i let my daughter do but um Mm -hmm. just in terms of you know read a book be present talk have a conversation i think there's a a general feeling that we don't want our our kids to be this heavily dependent on technology for human connection yeah i i agree with you and I and I still will say you can have the tablet at seven a.m. so I can sleep, and then I'll I'll come and get you at eight thirty. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you just have well, to I mean, sleep. There's, yeah, there's utility with it. I, not, I on not, not on a school day. Not on a school. Not on a school day. Yeah, but no, I mean they 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 get up really early, so Too sometimes early, yeah. yeah, yeah, you do what you have to do to make it through the day. For sure, being flexible doesn't just mean not losing your your shit with them it also means being okay with what you need to do in the moment to survive something that's always stayed with me about 10 years ago i had a friend back in boston before i moved out to california who i used to play basketball with and he was a bit older than me maybe maybe he was about 10 years older than me and i remember he had his he had his first kid and i had this assumption like oh i'm never going to see him again you know he had a kid i'm not going to see him at basketball a week after his kid he started coming back i was like oh hey man like i i just figured i was never gonna see you again and he was like what are you talking about like i need to do this so i can take care of myself so i can take care of my kid and i think there's a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me definitely definitely and it's like you know sometimes you need a few extra minutes of sleep so you can take care of your kid that day for sure it's true. Yeah. And and the more active they get, the more you figure out, okay, how can we plan out the day? I mean, this is a long break between d- December 16th and January 3rd. It's a long mm-hmm. break. We, we went to Yosemite. We, we tried to have a short vacation. Long story short, it didn't work out very well. Airbnb heating situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, then, uh, and then we come back and uh, catalytic converter is stolen from in front of our house from the Prius which is happening all over uh, the country, especially in California. So then we're dealing with the car and I'm trying to stay. Okay. I'm very lucky to have many things in my life. I'm trying to stay positive, you know, but um, yeah, a long stretch of time without school is there's extra demand on the parents. Again, we have checkers now, so we're going to make it through. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just think about how tough it's going to be when you get to summer break. Yeah, hopefully I'll have some some things lined up for her to be active and and have fun with in the in the summer. We did a yeah, and traveling back east probably in the summer too. Yeah, will the Celtics be in the finals, Noah? I, I know you. I know the NBA frustrates and disappoints you for many reasons, and I, I hear you. But uh, the Celtics are having a good year. I, I would be uh, remiss if we didn't discuss um, a little bit about the Celtics this year. Sure. Um, conventional wisdom at the beginning of the season would have certainly said no, but I think yes. It's going to be, a, I think we're going to get a rematch last year. 
you think the Warriors are going to be there? I th- I do. I think. Wow. I think regular season basketball is basically pointless. Right. The playoffs are just such a different animal, and I think everybody on the Warriors has done this over and over and over again. They don't care about the regular. They can they can be the eight seed and they'll they'll turn it on playoffs come and I think they're an entirely different team and then with the Celtics I just think Tatum has ascended so much and I think you know they're deeper than they've been they're Brogdon certainly helps the Celtics have a better chance coming out of the east even though the Bucks and now the Sixers have picked it up a little bit I think the Bucks are going to be tough but um well the Bucks are always tough but I don't think they didn't have Middleton in this last in this last the Christmas Day game I have no faith in the Sixers. I never do. I have no faith in the, the Nets. Nets never, yeah, the Nets yeah. are something will go wrong with Kyrie in the second round. And yeah, it's that. But, that, but, I, but the yeah. West, but the West. I'm. I th- if Kawhi is ninety percent, I I can't hang my hat on that. You know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And then, what about the Nuggets and Jokic? Listen, I love I love yoga. It's more than just about anything in this world. I was thinking I, about I driving love... to Sacramento to see him tomorrow. I'm not sure if I will because it might be raining. But I was thinking yeah. about trying to see him live. I just I think experience matters, and I think think Steph has one or two more left in him, and and it's you know he's 34, going to be 35. If he's going to rattle off another one or two, it has to be it has to be is now. It, so. This is his last one with Draymond. Probably. Yeah, probably. So I don't know. I, I, I think the playoffs are just such a different animal. Most guys in the NBA after a few seasons, I think they realize that. And they're just like, you know, I, well, who cares about the regular season? As long as I get to the playoffs, then we can turn it on. Unless they really want an MVP, which is what Tatum wants right now. Yeah. It'll be but interesting. Yeah, I, I, and, you know, anything can happen. It would surprise me if the Celtics weren't in the finals I would be very surprised knock on wood everything has looked really great until that little that little blip after the road trip but uh it's a long season Giannis is always going to be a tough out but I just I think you know Tatum keeps getting better and better he's really now in that deep window so be very exciting to see a rematch and and if only the tickets weren't eight million dollars for a nosebleed seat in the Chase Center I know of of the many things that really drive me crazy about the NBA, it's the fact that so many arenas are just such a rip off. It's crazy, yeah. I would. I'm hoping to get back to Boston in in uh, the end of the regular season, the first week of April, to see. I think I have. I share. I share two tickets with many people that we've been sharing mm-hmm. for a long a long time, and I think they're playing Toronto at the end of the regular season, but. I would love to see them in the playoffs someday again. Yeah. I, I mean, prices in Boston are never going to get cheaper. No, they're absurd. For anything, for housing, for any, for the Red Sox, the Celtics, the, for <laughs> anything. It's, it, I had a conversation earlier today about, oh, would you ever move back to Cambridge? And it's like, well, I mean, sure, I would, but it costs as much as San Diego does, and you don't get San Diego's weather. So right. what, what right. would the point be? Yeah. You'd have to really want to see a lot of Celtics games. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, at, at that point, I could 
I'd be better off moving to Sacramento and just going to see the Celtics when they when I came to Sacramento. That's what I do. I, that's what I do. I don't I don't see them in 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 San Francisco. I see them in uh, Sacramento. Oh, uh, yeah, it's too bad. I I still love watching the NBA, but it does feel like the drama and the soap opera aspect and the social media. Aspect. It's just- the fan experience just so watered down. I mean, I genuinely, over the last few years, have stopped pretty much paying attention to the NBA until after the All-Star break. And then mm-hmm. I don't really start watching like every day until the playoffs. And then, you know, when the playoffs come, I want to I wanna watch playoff basketball because I still think for American sports, nothing is better than playoff NBA basketball. But the regular agreed. season just feels like such a waste of time. Agreed, agreed. They, they need to shorten the season. I've been saying for years, 66 games would be enough. I'd be happy with a great 50 to be. I mean, I know everyone thinks I'm crazy when I say that. A great 50 games, you know, I, I can live if, with that. I, if they were playing twice a week, you would, you would see everybody playing well, 45 games out of 50. You would see every, yeah. every star would be playing 45 out of 50 games. You wouldn't be going to an arena and then the guy's out you wouldn't be well, waiting that, and for a date on the calendar and then the guy's out for a week and that's the thing too two points on that one i mean Kawhi only plays if we're all lucky he plays 50 games so 50 games out of Kawhi either way but the other thing is people say like, oh you know if if you shorten the season guys are still gonna rest well that's not true if you shorten it enough because if they don't play they A, risk injury, and B, they're not going to be sharp when the playoffs come. No matter what happens, they would be playing for the last two months of the season. Really, you're just, you're talking about injuries and career length. You can make contracts, you can build it into the collective bargaining agreement so that there's legitimate injuries and then there's the load management Mm -hmm. and they could be categorized. And they now have the technology to categorize those injuries I mean, they never will do that. The Players Association will never say yes to that. But if they get the same pay for 50 games instead of 80 games, which the average moron will shout, the NBA players are so overpaid already. How could they only play 50 games? What babies? Who gives a shit what morons say? If you're getting paid the same amount and you're not risking your body the same way and the schedule makes more sense. Well, you can also just stagger the schedule out. So there's, you know, a couple games every day. And then the fan experience is better. So you right. get better games every day instead of 10, 12, you know, watered down, pointless, crappy games with all this manufactured, you know, bullshit that nobody really cares about. But it's money. Yeah, I mean, it's like American professional sports are just the absolute worst of, of all of the horrible things that American capitalism is. You know, it's like, why are we playing 17 NFL games now? What's the NFL? Money. It's all. It's all just yeah. you know, how, how much yeah. can we shake out? Can we shake out of everyone? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm still follow baseball and basketball. I don't. I don't follow football. It's been a long time. I just was like, I I can't bother with this. No, anymore. It, it, it's so it's so disgusting, and it's you you do, anybody who actually thinks critically about things, and I still do. I watched more football this year than I have in the past several years, which I'm slightly ashamed of, but I still feel somewhat dirty doing it. And it's like anyone who's capable of thinking critically should feel dirty watching the NFL or, you know, any football. 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to be judgmental around what people like to watch, but if you care about your brain, mm-hmm. you kind of should care about other people's brains. Would you want your child to no, I would I wouldn't get, I wouldn't get, if, get concussed uh, no. on a weekly basis? Well then why do no. you want someone else's child to get concussed on a weekly basis? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean the CTE stuff is just, just so grotesque and it's such a like People still, I mean, fans, there are still plenty of fans who refuse to believe how serious CTE is and how it changes people's lives. Yeah. Before we go, I need to ask you about sandwiches. I know you love sandwiches. I do, uh, yeah. And I need you to tell me your top three sandwiches and why. Whew. Um, so I went to Paris for the first time in my life about two months ago. The patisseries, the sandwiches they had were just so incredible. I, I never had sandwiches. I I was just I was living off of them. I would there I would get you know there were days as everybody's talking about how oh Paris has the greatest restaurants in the world. I was like you know what there were, there are plenty of days I went and got a you know a, a ham and cheese sandwich from a patisserie for lunch. Then I went back for dinner and had the same thing. That's how good the sandwiches were. Um, the bread is incredible. The the, the the everything about it. But I'll 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 put that aside because that's not so much a specific sandwich. That's just kind of like a you know an orgiastic sandwich experience. <laughs> okay. Um. So top three sandwiches. In I can't I can't give it to an order because my order will change like day to day so i'm just gonna I'm give guessing i'm guessing order. pastrami's coming in i was gonna pastrami on rye with uh the brown mustard um there's a lot of bad pastrami out there so it has to be from like an actual reputable jewish deli but if it's okay. a legitimate pastrami on rye with um the with the brown mustard mm-hmm. and the pickles and all the fixings mm-hmm. uh, that's in there i love a bond meat. I think bond meats are a good bond meat is incredible. Refreshing, refreshing. Yeah, and I I, I love the uh, the pork. Well, the, the pork, the shrimp. I but the uh, I don't know. I can't get I can't of... get shrimp in a sandwich. I can't. Interesting. I don't know. Is it, I don't know if it's called daikon. Whatever the cabbage they use in the bond meat is yeah. just so good, and it goes so well with pork. Mm-hmm. Um. Vietnamese sandwiches, the bun. Yeah, yeah, they're they're really good. Um, I mean, Cubans and Rubens are good, but I'll I'll put those aside because those are a little bit too similar to the deli sandwiches. Um, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a I'm gonna cop out a little bit here, but I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a top three sandwich is a grilled cheese on sourdough. Oh with, yeah. Three strips of bacon and an okay. incredibly thinly sliced tomato. Okay. And if you have some tomato bisque on the side to dip it in. Oh, yeah. It's hard to top that. And I know it's like a, a... On a cold day, a nice tomato bisque, on the, a warm tomato bisque on the side of a grilled cheese with bacon, sure. It's simple, but it is just so good. When when you make a good grilled cheese, it's it's hard to beat the, the, the comfort food factor there. Yeah. But I mean, there there are very few, if any, sandwiches I don't like. So if you ask me this tomorrow or yesterday, could be another three. Exactly. Sandwiches, we need them. Yeah. (laughs) All right. 
Well, this has been a lot of fun, though. I appreciate you uh, you taking the time. For sure. And we'll definitely, we'll get together one of these days up in the Bay. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it happen. And if I'm down there, we'll, we'll, Absolutely. I'll, I'll let you know. My, uh, my breakfast nook is always open. Okay. All right. It was good to talk Take to care. you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.